for listening. When I was a little baby, my mother rocked me in the cradle. And I'm all confused at home. When I was a little baby, my mother would rock me in the cradle. And I'm all confused at home. Oh, when them cotton balls get rotten, you couldn't pick very much cotton. And I'm Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have sitting with me here Rachel Richardson and Hannah Pilvinen. Welcome, ladies. Completely lovely to be here. <laughs> Thank you for having us. And thanks for fitting it in. I should say that we're taping the show the 4th of October, 2012. And you guys are in town reading. Um, so uh, this is right before the reading and after a craft talk. So we should have some honey or something for your voices on the table. But <laughs> thanks for coming to the station. It's good to see you. We've got a couple of your books on the table, um, which is kind of great because today we'll have the opportunity to talk about both fiction and poetry. Um and have a conversation about your books and writing, too. Um, so Hannah's book, We Sinners, out this year uh, with Henry Holt. Um, I'll do a quick thank you to Melanie DiNardo for sending the book. Very kind. And Rachel, your book, Copperhead. Um, this was out with Carnegie Mellon 2011. And thanks to Th Cynthia Lamb for sending it along. Um, and... How's it been going since you guys arrived? Did you just fly in this morning, basically? Flew in last night. Um, it's been great. It's been perfect weather and a lovely return. Yeah, it's a homecoming mm -hmm. of sorts. And so for how long, Rachel, since you've been in Ann Arbor? Eight years. Eight years. Okay. Because both of you were here. Okay. Um, both of you were here... Um, both of you were here for your MFAs. And so, Rachel, for you, it was eight years ago. And then you went on to get your MA in folklore. That's right. Yeah. Um, at the University of North Carolina. I did that a, a couple of years later um, as sort of a compliment uh, to the literary education I'd gotten here. Yeah. Did you take a class here, um, Rachel? And then, you know... Um, I'm thinking of Ruth Behar's uh, ethnography class, and then that sort of piqued your interest. I didn't take a class with her. I um, I knew about that, and I didn't think I had time at the at the time that I was here doing the MFA. It's but hard. it was <laughs> it was something that did sort of pique my interest, and I I realized that I was getting so steeped in literature here and in in the the wealth of different styles and forms. Um, that that was a, a huge influence on me while I was here and, and a, a major part of my starting to write um, my book. Uh, but um, but by the time I left, I, I realized that to finish the manuscript and to have it be something that I considered complete, um, because I'm writing so much about a landscape and a people, a culture um, in, in North Louisiana, I, I thought that I needed to... Um, have another dimension there and, and ah. to and to learn more about the culture of the South. And so I went and studied the blues and studied oral storytelling and um, tried to kind of steep myself in that in that place. So 
Really? You so you have this it was this masters was feeding this book Copperhead. Absolutely. I went you know, for completely for um selfish purposes. I didn't particularly <laughs> care about being an ethnographer <laughs> about um you know doing field work. Hopefully those uh, in North Carolina aren't listening right now. Rachel well, they know. very seriously. <laughs> but what are I think you're throwing down the gauntlet here. Like what are you prepared to do people for your writing your book, your material? get a master's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't intending, I didn't know that we would be there. um, My husband and I would be there long enough for me to even finish the program. I just went to take a class on the blues, really. Um, And then, and then to, um, I ended up staying because I fell in love with the program and the people there. And I realized that there was so much more for me to learn about the subject um, than, than I had done in that semester. And we ended up staying in the area until now. Um, and we'll and so get I back. Had lots of time to to do that. And we'll get yeah, we'll get back because maybe that's feeding your new project. So so we'll we'll see. And um, so Rachel's sh- short bio on the back of Copperhead. Rachel Richardson has published poems in the New England Review, Slate, Southern Review, Ninth Letter, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and an MA in folklore from the University of North Carolina. Her awards include a Stegner Fellowship, a Hopwood Award, and then scholarships to the Breadloaf and Sewanee Writers Conferences. She has taught in several prisons, public schools, and universities, and lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm so glad that you put prisons first, too, and well, that'll come back. But I just love how it's like... Mm, you know <laughs> that was a pivotal part of my figuring out this book too i was doing those workshops yes that's that's what i that's what i was wondering okay and so and hannah um you have a more your homecoming a real homecoming how many so what's your time frame well, I graduated from Michigan in 2010, um, but i grew up 45 minutes from ann arbor i am a michigander and so coming back now, because you live in Brooklyn now, yeah. So it was you were returning here. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it strange to be um, in the Hopwood room in a different way? Like today, you both gave a craft talk with students. So was it something that you felt? You know, I think for me, it. Uh, I have somewhat mixed feelings it doesn't quite feel like you know the uh, the hero's welcome perhaps um only because um uh rachel just now is speaking about writing about a specific place louisiana and um that area and i am also writing about a specific place and that's uh contemporary suburban michigan um and i feel you know at least somewhat beholden to both um, the communities, the religious community I write about, but also to um, Michiganders. Um, There's not a lot of people who write about the Detroit area in general, especially the suburbs. Um, I mean, in fact, people don't really write about the suburbs. (laughs) So uh, it is interesting to return and re-see this place now that the book is out and... um, and also on a more personal level to be returning home to this uh, very personal um, and somewhat painful, ter- you know, emotional territory. And we'll talk, we'll talk more about that if you, if you don't mind, because as it, as it, as it um, informs the book. Sure. Oh, okay. Um, and now Hannah's on the back, uh, her bio from We Sinners, a novel out this year with Henry Holt. Um, Hannah Pilvine and... 
is from suburban Detroit. She graduated from Mount Holyoke College and received her MFA from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, where she was also a Zell postgraduate fellow. She is the recipient of residencies at the McDowell Colony in Yaddo and a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Okay, so both of you welcome. Glad you're glad you're back. Um, and so, Rachel, you you actually had the first. We're going to sort of alternate musical picks or so, such as it is. <laughs> and so we started the program with Lead Belly. Um, but why why was that one of your your top top options? <laughs> well, Lead Belly was um, my grandmother's contemporary in. Um, in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is a city that, a small city, a pretty sleepy city, and one that doesn't get a lot of attention in Louisiana, uh, as no one writes about the suburbs. Most people don't write about North Louisiana. They write about South Louisiana, because that's where everyone sees uh, the, the sort of center of the culture, New Orleans and um, and the Cajun country. Um, and North Louisiana is more akin to Texas, maybe, and, and Arkansas than it is to South Louisiana. Um, it's Bible Belt. It's it's um, more hilly. Uh, the the landscape is very much different. Um, Rachel, did you did you go there as a child? Was it something where? Because I know it's in, at least in your 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 bio from Poetry Foundation, it says that you were born and raised in Berkeley, California. Yes, but you're but you're <laughs> but but it sounds like you're deeply connected to yes, to, my uh, northern Louisiana. My background is that, yes, I was raised in Berkeley, California, um, which is about as culturally distant as you can get from North Louisiana. Uh, but my father grew up in uh, in North Louisiana. My grandmother still lives there, and my other extended family on his side is there in, in that region and in an arc the Arklatex in uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. And wow, so, I actually, I don't think I've ever I've heard anyone say that, so thank you. <laughs> Can you say it one more time? <laughs> yeah, there's the Arklatex on one side, and on, on the east side is the Arklamus. Um, wow. <laughs> what people do with language. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. That's one yes. of the things that drew me to that region, uh, is there's this very um, unique sort of mixture of of languages there uh, and, and musicality to language that is so mesmerizing for me and always has been. So I traveled there as a kid um, just to visit my family at least once every year. Um, and, I, and so I ended up spending quite a bit of time there over my life, but never lived in in Louisiana or in the South at all until six years ago when I moved to North Carolina. And so your your grandma said way back when, little Rachel, the, the Northern Louisiana has not been represented. <laughs> and so and so you picked this up and you... Maybe not. She might have preferred that I didn't write about it, um, or at least not in the from the perspective that I had, um, because it was very much. I I've always felt that I was writing as an outsider and as someone who was a critic of the culture, as much as I also loved it and was um, was attracted to all of these elements in it. Um, the sort of lushness of the landscape and the musicality of the language um, and just the music that was everywhere. Um, I also was a critic of the sort of social system, the caste system, the sort of what I saw as racial strife there. Um, Even thinking about the song that we start with, right? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's like there's a, there's such haunting beauty, but it's it's about it's picking cotton. cotton. <laughs> yeah, um, and so that so I think of Lead Belly as a particularly emblematic figure because he was um, when my grandmother was a young woman living in. 
the sort of white upper middle class um, and very sheltered um, part of the city. He was someone who was in and out of one of the harshest prisons in the country, and he was this incredibly talented, um, also native Shreveport uh, musician. And he was playing in the clubs downtown and stuff. And I, I'm sure my grandmother never knew who he was, never you know came anywhere near to him. But uh, those, mm-hmm. those I think, are the two sort of cultural sides of the city that I wanted to explore and represent and, and look at the conflict between. Yes, because there's where there is conflict, there's material. Well, in a good yeah. way, not as a not like that. That writers are poachers of material, but but things you want to understand. No, but you can never write about something that you purely love or purely hate. I think you write about the places of conflict um, because that's what draws you back to it. That's what makes you obsessed <laughs> and <laughs> makes you need to need to deal with it. And Hannah, you're nodding so. Oh, absolutely. I would really join in on that because um, one of the things that I think is always a danger in writing, and maybe Rachel agrees with me, is it's it's very easy, um, that's from a fiction writer's perspective, for instance, but it's very easy to write a character who um, is hateful or snarky or sarcastic. Um, It's easy to write extremes, and it's easy to write a character who's like, oh, so loving and so full of grace and hope and joy. And um, those are never really the places that are the most interesting for readers. Um, And I feel like the attempt is that you're trying to do as a writer is to never release tension, but to retain it. Um, And the longer that you can retain the uh, tension between whatever the pressures are of that community or um, that book, those characters. I feel like, you know, the the better the writing is and the more interested the reader is, but it's terrifically difficult to do. Yeah. So how do you, how do you retain the, the tension then? Rachel's like, you go and you do an ethnography and you start <laughs> digging further. Uh, no. <laughs> but I think also maybe, actually, I'd be curious. I mean, we're coming, writing about two very different communities, but I'd be curious mm-hmm. what you would have to say about this. But um, I would also say as a writer, you can't take sides. And the yeah. second you take sides on anything, the reader can smell it from a mile away. And I think it's not a good smell, (laughs) not the right scent. No. And so as difficult as it is, um, I feel like you as a writer have to be able to be emotionally open to all possible existences and communities and truths and beliefs. And the thing that I always notice when I write and Rachel, I'd be curious if um, to hear your uh, feedback on this, but the most difficult characters to write are the characters uh, that I don't agree with. Um, or, um, to show them with empathy. Absolutely. Because in that moment as a writer, I have to believe along with them. And if I don't, then I'm going to fail to capture them. I, I would say too, um, yes, I think you, you have to not take sides, but for me coming at my project as, um, I guess I see it as being closer to autobiography than to a novel. Um, and I, I, I use the documentary as um, the other form other than, you know, books of poetry that I'm really borrowing from in making this uh, book. Uh, I see my obligation as not just um, retaining my um, distance from, you know, being able to see all characters empathetically and not take sides, but also as exposing myself as, um, as vulnerable and as flawed. Yes. Um, And so putting myself into the book, I, 
I spent a long time when I was in early drafts of this trying not to have myself be a character and trying to write in the third person or in the second person or just write about other people and not have myself in the book at all. And Good that never that. worked. Right. Um, it, it, it only began to work uh, and the conflict was able to escalate and, um, and stay at that, at that breaking point when I was part of it too and, and was equally... Um, you know, at fault. <laughs> we'll take a short break and then we'll pick up with that. Okay. Okay. Sounds good, guys. Yep. Today, Hannah Pilvinen, We Sinners, a novel. Rachel Richardson, Copperhead. You've got living writers. We'll be right back. Come save your dear with us abide. We need thy kind compassion, thy flock to living waters guide, which are thy wounds and passion, and lead us into pastures green, where faithful souls are ever seen in bliss and peaceful union. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I hope you were there for the last minute uh, when Hannah Pilvinen was singing a song. A Buddhist that called Hannah. Well, it's a song that's actually sung by my character in We Sinners, and it's a old church hymn, um, and it's just called Come Save Your Dear With Us Abide. Lovely, lovely. Thank you for singing that, because we didn't have that at the station, <laughs> <laughs> but we should get it. Oh, you should, should really your... stock up on your Lutheran hymns. I mean. <laughs> it is. There's a gap. There's, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No. and and so today on Living Writers, Hannah Pulvinen is here. Rachel Richardson, um, Rachel's book Copperhead, and Hannah's book We Sinners. Um, so so this character, can you tell us a little bit more, Hannah, about um, this, like the connection to the song and uh, yeah, absolutely, and and the community actually. Let's talk a little bit. At the top of the show, you sure. were talking about returning here to a suburb of a suburb of Detroit, also an enclave of um, Finnish uh, ex- expats or immigrants. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I come from a very little known um, community of uh, Finnish fundamentalists, um, though they would not use that word. Um, and I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and we were simply an extremely large family in an otherwise normal um, suburb. So we uh, had so neighbors, had even two kids, life. and we had uh, many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had giant vans. Uh, we had toys all over the yard. Um, and uh, so, you know, I had the experience of growing up of always feeling like I didn't, um, I didn't belong. I didn't fit in. Um, possibly with either world, either the world of the church and my family, but also um, the world of school, um, the world of boys, the world of growing up um, was a very treacherous place in suburban Detroit for me, <laughs> uh, despite uh, the beauty and safety of our suburbs. <laughs> but but I, I would, I would, it sounds like it was a, a, like you had a sense of being an outsider, even though this was where you were born. 
Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, both about the Detroit area, and um, I think in some ways that my book tries to um, encompass, um, one of the things that um, a reader might notice is they go through the book, the book moves chronologically in time through the perspectives of different characters of this particular family, but it also moves through space. And so early on in the book, one of the things I was interested in doing was showing these characters first in these very small and close spaces. So just the home, the, the van, the tiny apartment, the tiny apartment, you know, the church, um, and slowly those worlds widen. Um, and there you begin to enter the world of the parking lot of Target, um, Best Buy, movie theaters, um, the, the the real places of suburban suburbia. Detroit, <laughs> and also specifically some places which are are uh, uh, authentic to my own experience of um, you know of Detroit suburban living, which would be um, one chapter in particular is about um, the Jewish Community Center, which is a very important um, and large part of the suburb. Um, that I grew up in. And so to a certain extent, um, the other thing you'll notice too throughout the book is the the reader, the characters struggle a lot with money. Um, they're often in their cars. I mean, there's a lot of things which are very Michigan. <laughs> I think, and I've actually had some people say, wow, your characters are always in a van or your characters are always yeah. in a car. You're on the road. Yeah, yeah. you're driving. <laughs> well, welcome to Michigan. <laughs> and they're stuck in traffic because there's construction. Right, Right. So um, one of the things I was interested in is the way that this family, the Rovanimi family, um, is um, abutting the the rest of the world and um, doesn't belong and is, is, sort of, is, is estranged by the suburban community, but also self-estranged. And um, I think those that particular tension was um, maybe of most interest to me. And, um, and and Hannah, you wrote this um, in an earlier form, because I know these are particular stories, right? But as a memoir, right? Uh, there, I mean, it wasn't like it was We Sinners, but there was some reckoning that you were trying to, I think, figure out with the tension that you're talking about between the community of the family yeah I wrote my I wrote a memoir for my undergraduate thesis and I think that for me was more of my own personal reckoning um with myself with what my relationship to the church was um and with leaving it um which was um a personally very difficult moment for me but I think we sinners was slightly um less so and more about uh Rather than asking the question, why did I leave, and really wanting to answer that, which is how I felt about my memoir, I think we sinners ask a much more difficult and harder question, which is, why do people stay? And I think it's a terrifically hard question, which I'm not sure that I know the answer to, but um, you know, in, I- in an ideal world, it's at least a question my book asks. Mm-hmm. And what was, what was it like, Hannah, to sing the song that the the hymn you sang for us so that particular hymn appears towards the end of the book and one of the things that's interesting is um towards the end of the book there is a um asian american who um, falls in love with one of the daughters of the rovanimi family at high school and he's sort of taken in by the family and by this community and um he watches this girl he's in love with sing this song and um, her mother forces her to pick her favorite church hymn 
um, on the eve of her high school graduation. And um, part of the reason I both wanted to sing it is because it has a certain um, uh, haunting Finnish uh, minor (laughs) melody to it. Um, Because the words are old, which is often true of the hymns in this particular church, lots of these and thous, you know, they use the King James. Um, There's a certain uh, austerity, I think, still to this this church and this faith and which I think crops up in its own way in my own personal style of writing. Um, but also I think on an emotional level, um, when I left the church, I felt like I didn't have ownership of, um, those songs anymore. Um, I wondered a lot often, do I have a right to write about these people? Do I have a right to say these things? Do I have a right to sing these songs? Um, and it's, um, (laughs) whether or not the answer is yes, I've clearly concluded yes and gone ahead and done it anyway. Um, and we're glad you did. (laughs) So I think it's, uh, you know, mixed blessings, mixed curses. Um, and you say the right to say these things and it makes me think like both of you are obvious. I feel like grappling with this. Mm -hmm right to say these things. Rachel, do you have like some, give us some insight, Rachel. (laughs) I, um, that was a big part of my figuring out how to write about this place that I didn't come from. Um, it, it felt that it wasn't my right to say it. It wasn't my right to write about it. It wasn't my right to critique it. Um, being, someone who is not native um, to the place. But at the same time, I'm someone who has inherited something from it. I mean, I, I have, my family is from there and I, it, it feels like it is a part of me in another way. And, and when, in the way you speak about it, Rachel, I feel like there's, it might be in your DNA. Like you go to this place, <laughs> right? And there's something about like your cellular structure that recognizes maybe something about the place. Yeah, it's. That, or, or I think is that that's too? true. No, well, I think <laughs> magical <that's> probably... thinking. <laughs> um, I have loved it for a long time. Uh, there, there, going there is. Uh, I feel steeped in something, um, and in a culture that is much more um, cohesive and full than the one that I grew up in, which was wonderful, but was also fragmented and totally heterogeneous. Um, so it didn't feel like a single thing. Um, so going there felt like I was, yeah, taking part in something that was, um, I guess richer, um, or had a deeper, longer background than, um, than the culture in, in Berkeley, California, where, uh, where most everyone I knew had parents who'd come from somewhere else. Um, so, in a way, yes, I was an outsider there, and I was um, someone who who felt completely alien and completely uh, like I didn't fit in, like I was not part of it, and I didn't know the proper way to act, the proper way to speak to adults, you know, um, any of the customs. But on the other hand... In uh, northern Louisiana. Yes, in northern Louisiana. Um, but on the other hand, it, it did feel like it, it had somehow shaped me still. Um, and and that it was to figure it out, to spend time with it, and to um, to learn more about it was to figure out something about myself too. 
Will you will you read us a poem, Rachel? Sure, I'd love to. Um, well, I guess I'll start with this poem about Lead Belly. Um, it's less sort of directly autobiographical. It's a it's a portrait I call it, um, but he's a character who I've found to be kind of a a touchstone, someone who's um, inspired me a lot in uh, in my study of the place and in my in my time spent there. Um, this poem is called Portrait of Lead Belly in Pinstriped Suit, and there are two lines in it that are quotes from two of Leadbelly's songs, so you'll probably hear them. One of them is, the, the final one is um, from his version of Amazing Grace. Portrait of Leadbelly in Pinstriped Suit. In the distance, wild blue cane, the fugitive strain. He bows in them old cotton fields back home. Angola, 12-bar blues, fiber thick in his fist, and the law cuts him deals, leads him in and out of farms. The bull is parenthesis, the weevil his voice, and the city takes him back in soot-stained arms, furnace breath to joints he shakes like the devil has shimmied up inside his leather boot. Blue cane in ten-foot topsoil where no man dares plow, because one day he'll raise his head against the whip, smile at the overseer, Swear his name's Mr. Ledbetter, chains or no. How sweet the sound. Thank you, Rachel. And that was from Copperhead, Rachel Richardson. Also on today's program, Hannah Pilvinen is here. We Sinners, her novel. I'm T. Hetzel. Gus is engineering. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers and a little Finnish medal thrown in. And today, <laughs> Hannah Pilvinen is here with her novel, We Sinners, and Rachel Richardson with her collection of poems, Copperhead, um, which we just heard one of. Um, and so this Finnish medal, I feel like you're, what was it? That was just very different from our, the hymn. That yeah. you sang for us, Hannah. It couldn't be more different. It couldn't be more different. And actually, um, there's a, a spot in my book, which I think is just going to lead in so nicely here. Um, and so one of the chapters in my book is called Party Boy. And it's sort of about this question of one of the boys in this, this big family uh, kind of does a typical thing. And he goes away to college and, you know, tries the party scene. And um, how could you not? Well, many don't. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I was interested in in the stories, and in some ways, it's, it's a classic experience. It's sh- it's, it's shared by 
all of us, I think, or many at least who go away to college and maybe drink for the first time or something like that. Um, but the stakes here feel much higher um, for this particular character. Because there's like a cliff on the other side after taking this risk. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, at the opening of this particular story, Party Boy, um, I just want to read really briefly, um, really just this short paragraph or two, um, when he first walks into a party. It was a basement apartment and the lights were garishly on and there was a series of couches that people sat on watching sports. Except for the music, it was awkwardly quiet. He guessed from the stink of things that everyone must have been high. This is what pot smells like, he told himself. He felt a strange stickiness beneath his feet and realized the entire carpet was preemptively covered in plastic, an odd maturity that anticipated immaturity. It amazed him how average everyone looked. Didn't they know they were at a party? He realized he also looked average. He tried the beer, and at first the stale smell revolted him, but he was good at mind over matter, good at plunging his hand into the garbage disposal when the sink was full of softened chunks of oatmeal and the pulps of peppers. God, Bernie said, I feel like a sweaty mess. Do I look like a sweaty mess? It occurred to him that she was nervous, too. You look great, he said awkwardly. He wasn't sure what he was supposed to say. His heart was drumming. But no one ever, by looking at him, would guess that he was 19 and the third oldest of nine kids and not supposed to listen to music with a beat. He went into the living room and leaned against the door jamb and tried to look as if hell itself did not rest on what he did or didn't do that night. Hell itself. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, so that feels like that could be something that... As a writer, you were able to tap in to your own experience and give it to a character in a new way or or no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about my party experience. <laughs> I don't know. Gus perked up. <laughs> or maybe we should. This conversation is about to get very, very interesting, folks. <laughs> we, we have some FS, FCC you know, regulations, but other than that, the sky's the limit. Like, yeah, no, no. Um, I mean, I would say absolutely in terms of, um, for me, growing up in this very conservative community and um, going away to college, absolutely having some of those experiences um, felt very lonely. I mean, I think loneliness is a word I keep repeating over and over again here, but um, I think it's a key emotion in my book and something I'm, I'm interested in as a writer, um, especially is this idea how even amongst many people you can feel lonely, how you can be at a party and feel lonely, how you can sit in a full church and feel lonely, how you can sit at a family reunion and feel lonely. So I think it's something that my book um, tries to ask is um, whether we make decisions about our lives really for ourselves or for each other, like who it is in our lives that pushes us one way or another, or uh, the reasons we end up in Louisiana or Michigan <laughs> or Brooklyn. Um, and was that really for our own great abstract reasons or did we fall in love or did we, um, 
I don't know. Did we do what our parents did? Did we do what our sister did? Did we try to do what our sister didn't do? Um, And so I think those questions are very interesting to me. And so even in the excerpt that I was reading where Nels is going to that party, um, you know, parties are always a scene where you want to fit in, you want to belong. It's a, you know, it's all about identity. Oh, absolutely. And um, one of the things that Nels thinks, which I think is really key to the emotion of the book, is that no one would guess. Mm. And that's something that, you know, I think both growing up and to some extent to college, I used to strive for like, no one would ever know. <laughs> this is my secret. Yeah. But, but the masks then that like that, it almost feels like come down. Um, then it becomes confusing because how sometimes they get stuck or how do you lift them or, well, then you write a book about it <laughs> and then there's no facade at all. <laughs> and everyone knows all your secrets. And I think actually this returns me to a thought that Rachel brought up earlier, which I thought was so terrific and something which I think is really true, which is that in order to write about people, other people, honestly, you have to be able to write about yourself. And I think for me as a writer, one of the, um, my own, and possibly only uh, solace and having written about a community which did not want me to write about them was that um, uh, who I know and I can say with a with with absolute confidence that um, the person I was hardest on in this book was myself and um, and I don't mean that as punishment I mean that as the most vulnerable whose stories were the most widely written about and whose own personal experiences are splashed most across the the pages absolutely absolutely i mean there's no doubt in my mind that all my characters are me and especially the things they did wrong boy oh boy is that me (laughs) well rachel and you're nodding so yeah i mean i think i as i said i avoided myself in in writing this for a long time and the feedback that I got again and again from my classmates in workshop and, you know, other good readers who I, I passed this on to was you're passing judgments and that's not interesting. Um, and, and it's also two dimensional. It doesn't, it's not going to be a book that works. Um, and, and so when judgment, I, yeah, when I let it be really, when I, that, that helped me to figure out what the real subject of the book was, which was my own coming to terms with this place and what this place represented. I mean, the place is metaphorical in some sense, um, or it just it allows me to access certain um, bigger subjects. And um, when those things came to the surface and, and became a big part of the book, then the book, I, I started to see how the book could work and, and it finally did. And so did things drop out of it, Rachel, that you had imagined would be like, like there was shape shifting as you actually introduced like the vulnerability and the flaws of your own kind of voice into it? Or is that going too far? No, I'm just wondering how much I should say about my family here. I um, I, I thought this was going to be Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was going to be a book much more about. Uh, my father and my grandmother and um and it is i mean it's shaped by them and by their stories but um i i felt particularly critical of some of those some of that family history and and that that i at least in in most recent iterations of it rests kind of on their shoulders and um and so i, I began with 
you know, in early versions of this book, there were a lot of angry poems directed at my family members. Um, and most of those dropped out because not because I, you know, felt any obligation to being nicer to them or anything, but I realized that that wasn't really what I was frustrated with and what I needed to deal with in the in the book. The um, anger was almost a sur- like a superficial level of what you were trying. Right. Or to, or that there. Right. That, that the anger exists, um, but it's a more complicated emotional. You know, it's part of a more complex um, set of responses to to is, the is place the, and to uh, to, you know, my own sort of personal inheritance. Is that the second book? Maybe. <laughs> um, well, you know, I actually also think it's interesting that um, I have one longer poem in this book uh, called My Grandmother Plays Emily in Our Town, the play. Um, she had been an actress as a as a young woman. And Would you um, like to read it, Rachel? Oh, it might be kind of long to read. Oh, um, I well, could maybe read a section of it or something. Um, but I... I had thought that it was sort of my most critical look at my grandmother and um, and the moment when I, well, one of a couple of moments in the book where I sort of um, show her to be a limited person in a, in a way that I thought that she might not appreciate. Um, although I tried to do it empathetically and fairly um, and also, you know, to allow that the poem could be somewhat fictional too, that it didn't, it wasn't just a representation of her um, in fact, but um, I, I thought it was a poem that she might not appreciate having in public in that way. Um, and she actually... I, this I thought, one's for you, Granny. <laughs> right. But I also thought she's not too much of a reader of poetry, so maybe she won't notice. Although her name's in the title, so I think she might read that one if she's going to read any poem in this book. Um, so that felt a little dangerous to do. Is that why you ended it with P.S. I Love You? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I... I um, that that felt a little nervous making to um to publish that poem but i yeah. i did it anyway i i sent the book to her after it was published and um she called me up and said you know i read this poem actually she started crying while talking to me saying i read this poem and i don't think anyone has ever seen me as clearly as you're seeing me right now so that was a really wonderful moment for me because i I realized that I had been able to say what I wanted to say and say it in the way I intended to say it and, you know, have it feel like it was a poem. It was the poem I wanted to write. Um, and, and it was honest in a way that, you know, in the, the most, the way that I believed I could be the most honest. Um, and that she and could that see she that could, too. And that she could see that or, and or that she could see it in her own way. Um, that was maybe different from my interpretation and she could love that. Um, that made me feel like I had done my job. Yeah. And I mean, you got it right. Mm-hmm. And in part of like, I, I kind of wonder if you had sort of backed off some of it, then there would have been pieces missing and maybe you would have felt it was a kinder, gentler. Right. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have written another book. I couldn't have written a book that was, that, that pulled punches. Um, and I, and that wouldn't have felt, you know, like the right thing to do or, you know, the authentic thing to do. I don't think it would have been a good book either. Um, I'm not sure it would have found a publisher. Um, but so I, I, in a way, I didn't have a choice. But once that choice was made, I'm, you know, happy to know that my family mostly feels good about it and feels that they've been represented fairly. Um, Did, Hannah, how about um, the your your family's reaction? Not maybe the community, but your your because many of there's a big family in this story. It's sort of modeled 
as you're telling us more directly on your family? My family's reaction to this, um, you know, large families are made up of individuals, and so there are individual reactions, and I would say they run the full spectrum. <laughs> so some are fully supportive some and are encouraging. Fully supportive, yes, and some are not. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it is a Faustian bargain when you publish a book about a community and you have to know what you're going into and I did and uh, I think I just uh, as a writer I have to hope that um, in the end um, what the book has to say will speak louder than um, some of our personal and religious grievances with each other and maybe it's something that after an initial reaction there might be some time to give it some more thought and it might resonate for people in the community or from the particular church and in a different way, maybe. Absolutely. And I think, you know, have, I had once upon a time I had to leave the church, which was its own falling out and its own coming out. And I feel like I'm just doing it again. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we've got some brave books on the table today at Living Writers. So you're 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 listening today on the program. We have Hannah Pulvinen here, We Sinners, a novel, and Rachel Richardson, Copperhead. Um, we'll take a short break. Be right back. John, come on, Mr. Rosen. I know well, do you know? Well, I know about an Ava and a dress she wore. I'm a riddle on her shoulder. Welcome back. You've got loving writers. I'm T. Hutzel. Today, Hannah Pilvinen is here. Rachel Richardson. Um, thanks so much for coming, guys, and joining joining me in the studio today. It continues to be totally lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Always, right? Uh, well, thanks for listening out there, too, folks. Everyone tuning in today. Glad you did. Um, so we were talking about... Um, in, in the last quarter, uh, Rachel, you were you were talking about um, your grandma, uh, and you also actually said something off air <laughs> that we uh, you're now going to expose. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. Um, yeah, I was just saying to Hannah that I um, I had this one moment of affirmation with my grandmother, which I just talked about, but uh, but there was plenty of criticism as well of what I had written and whether I should have written it, whether I should have exposed this sort of family story at all and, and this part of the country, this, this, you know, culture at all, and whether it was my place to do that and whether I had done it right. Uh, and, and some of that centered, I mean, my father is a great supporter of my writing um, in general and, and of this book in the end, but he was, he was skeptical and concerned uh, before it came out. And um, so part of that, he manifested in him talking about, 
um, whether I had gotten facts right. So um, he was, he liked to challenge me on a couple of those, but I had done my research um, and generally um, I could back up what I said or, you know, I, it was all from the perspective of, you know, myself as, as a kid or, or older. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't something that was really up for debate or it was something that could be seen in multiple ways. And I tried to point that out to him. <laughs> so maybe he'll write his book soon. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's, and I wonder, it's not like either of you would take this book back out no. of the world. No. You know, it has to be in the world. Like you're sure of it. Yeah. Oh, let's. Can we hear the some the poem? Part of the sure. Or part of the poem, whatever. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll read work. a couple sections. It's in six sections. Um, I'll read the beginning and the end. Uh, so it's a poem called "My Grandmother Plays Emily in Our Town," and "Our Town" is a play, um, a modernist play, which it sort of surprised me once I actually read the play that my grandmother had been in it because she seems like such a sort of old-fashioned, proper Southern lady um, that you know to be in this play that was very sort of cutting edge and odd and modernist um, seemed to be a weird fit. But anyway, she played the lead character in the play a few different times. Um, and this was kind of her big claim to fame um, that she would tell the grandchildren. Um, she had said, she says to us, has said to us many times that she nearly didn't get married and nearly didn't choose this sort of domestic life, which she's very much fallen into. Um, and, and almost went off to become a professional actress. So it was yeah, this very of the important stage. thing to her at the time. Um, and, okay, so Our Town, as a play, if you're not familiar with it, it just, the, the main goal of Thornton Wilder, the writer of it, um, was to sort of break down the, the fourth wall and allow the, or ask the um, audience to constantly be sort of aware that this was a play, that this was a construct and not... Um, to allow themselves to get themselves to get fully sort of sucked into the um, the fiction of it, so it's very much about sort of going back and forth between what is reality and what is what is the construct, what is the play. Um, so this is section one of that play, um, or of that of my entering into the play. I am asking something gone return. At least one night, her face a girl's just twenty and to be married in a month, holding the dresses hem to her lips as places are called. And I come along too late to know her trembling, parting the curtain. Let me hear her now, perched on the ladder, recite, but mama, am I pretty enough? And then I'll skip to the end um, and read section five and six. Um, so Emily has died in the play and now she's a ghost and she's able to come back and kind of look at her life. So Emily steps back into childhood, though the wiser dead have told her don't into her mother's kitchen, her 12th birthday, a moment she thought she was happy. She watches now that life, mother speaking gruffly, father late to work Dead Emily kisses the cheek of the classmate playing her mother, understanding in that kitchen they'd all been blind. They never knew those people they said they loved. And then the last section, six. My grandmother maintains her grace to the end. She is the queen of the theater. All of Shreveport melts for her smile. She holds her palm out to feel the heavy drops as the curtains close. Though she knows this rain, 
is only the sound of rain. Thank you, Rachel. Sure. So the line before you move from it, that they never know, they know. They never knew those people they said they loved. That that <laughs> seems to be really, um, also in Hannah's book in some way. Yes. As <laughs> Tietzel gets out the two by four. <laughs> Makes a finer point. Oh dear. And that's a big theme, isn't it? Uh, in, in both of our books, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think in um, the the family in We Centers, the Rovanimis, I mean, one of the things they struggle with, which I think to some extent is cultural, but maybe all families struggle with, um, is actually verbalizing how they feel about each other. And you sort of, one of the things I've tried to do as a craft decision is um, because my book moves from chapter to chapter from uh the perspective of the different family members as they age as they age what ends up happening is you get a sort of dramatic irony as a reader because you can see them that they're able to think about each other but that they're not speaking to each other so for instance one of the characters has a boyfriend that she thinks is secret but then you can see later that the other characters know so there's a certain so that's i mean that's just one small example but even um other other moments which I think are you know maybe a bit more poignant um, is um, the father figure in particular has a very difficult time um, expressing his love for his children um, and his chapter is mostly written in um, an inner monologue I think because he has so much difficulty um, telling them how he feels and so he always is only showing through action and you can see later in the book the things he does for the family um, you know whether it's you know putting in like you know wood floors or um, worrying about them and praying for them but to the actual children of the family he's a very he's a silent figure who doesn't um, appear very often in their thoughts who doesn't appear very often in their lives and who doesn't actively verbalize um, w- how he feels about them. One moment, isn't isn't it um, like one of the the characters overhears him say, "I love, I love you. He, to another of the children, and pretend well says that this is also for, for well, her. Why don't you tell the? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, can you hop to yeah, close to yeah. it? So um, absolutely. Um, and this is a, a moment um, which is also important because it speaks to a large theme of my book, which is forgiveness. Um, and in this, um, one of the sisters, the little sisters, sort of knows that her older sister has been misbehaving. And um, so then there's a kind of question of the self-policing of families and how that works when, you know, do you tell? Do you not tell? <laughs> Who do you want to hate you? <laughs> it's so political. <laughs> um, and so this is um, a little uh, little girl named Lena, um, and she is thinking about her sister Tina and Tina's misbehavior, and she thinks of a story. Once she had been taking a sauna, and she had heard her dad come downstairs and start ironing his shirt. And a few minutes later, Tina had followed. The way her dad had built the sauna in the basement, she could hear everything through the vent. And Lena had stopped pouring water on the rocks, just listening. 
They were talking softly, but Lena knew, the whole house knew, that her dad had forbidden Tina to go hear the famous violinist play the Sibelius. Do you know, Tina had screamed, I am the only violinist in the country who is being forbidden to hear the very piece they are working on? And she had threatened to throw her violin, but of course she never would. For several minutes, there was only the sound of the iron, its hard hiss, its soft song. Then Tina had begun to cry, and there was the sound of her leaning or crumpling against the washer, and her dad must have set the iron down and walked over to her. He forgave her. He said he loved her. I love you, he had said, and Lena let the words be for her, too. She knew how hard it was for him to say these things. I love you, too, Dad, she had thought from the bench. I love you, Tina. It seemed... Thank you, Hannah. That is so, so, that just tears, that, I'm like, oh, <laughs> and, and Rachel too. Yeah. That, that's, I feel like there's forgiveness in both of your books. Even, even the last line you, you read for us also, Rachel, with the queen all melt, all of Shreveport melts. Mm. So there's these lines of, of beauty and, and forgiveness because you couldn't, you need the balance, yeah. don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I think you need the balance, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting and a commonality that we haven't totally touched on yet, even though it's the most obvious one to some extent, is that we're both female writers. And you want that to not be important, and it shouldn't be important. But um, And I personally believe it isn't important. The problem is that there's a public perception that it's important. And one of the things that does happen is when you write a book about family, when you write a book about community, when you write about anything which in any way smacks of the word domestic or the word quiet, you are in trouble territory. (laughs) Is that why you both named your books the way you did to sort of signal otherwise? Well, that's interesting. Um, Perhaps so. My book, actually, the the term Copperhead is uh, it has two meanings that I I thought were important to sort of allow to shape the book a little bit. First is that it's you know a snake that is native to this area. It's also considered to be the most dangerous of all of the snakes of all the the venomous snakes in um, in Louisiana or in the South. Um, and the second is that it was a term that was used. It's it's a folklore term. Um, it was. Uh, used as a derogatory term to refer to non-Southerners who sympathized with the Southern cause during the Civil War, so sympathized with the Confederacy. And so I think of it as, you know, a way to talk about betrayal, a way to talk about being an outsider um, who who sort of sides with, who has the wrong beliefs or sides with the wrong team or something. Um, I would not say that I am a copperhead in the sense of, you know, that is not a position I would have um, supported. But uh, I, I, it's a way to talk about being, um, coming to terms with, with these issues and, and, um, with being an outsider and an insider at the same time. And this is Copperhead with Carnegie Mellon Press. Um, and Hannah, we sinners, why that title? What were you throwing out there? I'm a sinner. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't we all? So are we all. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> Thank you, preach it. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Thank you. It's it's been a great a great hour with you guys. Thank you talking. so much. Um, you. Copperhead by Rachel Richardson. We sinners by Hannah Pilvinen. 
Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, December 19th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, as some state representatives propose arming teachers and school officials, lawmakers in Washington push stronger gun control measures. Israel approves construction of thousands more settlement homes, drawing condemnation from global leaders. And the UN suspends its anti-polio program in Pakistan after more workers are killed in the country. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. South Korea has elected its first female president, Park Geun-hye of the ruling Conservative Party won a narrow victory over her progressive contender. But as FSRN's Jason Struther reports, many South Korean women say Park doesn't represent them. Park Geun-hye delivered a victory speech to supporters in downtown Seoul late Wednesday night. The 60-year-old defeated former human rights lawyer Moon Jae-in of the opposition party. But in a nation where women still lag far behind men in economic and employment opportunities, Pak is not seen as a feminist politician. She is the daughter of the late South Korean dictator Pak Chung-hee, who, while revitalizing the nation's economy, also ruled with an iron fist. Since entering politics 15 years ago, Pak Geun-hye has never championed women's issues. It was only on the campaign trail that she pledged to work for women's interests. She says she supports expanded social welfare programs. She even says she wants better relations with North Korea. Pak will be sworn into office in February. Jason Struther, FSRN, Seoul. 